This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Dale Comstock, a man who has spent 35 years combating America's enemies as a Green Beret and as a Delta Force operator, and as a mercenary targeting high-value terrorists, their leaders, and financiers. He has been decorated twice for valor and combat, and has been at the tip of the spear in every conflict where America's special forces have been deployed, from Grenada and the invasion of Panama, where Dale and his team raided Modelo prison to rescue American hostage Kurt Muse, through to the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and beyond. Dale also holds black belts in jiu-jitsu, American open karate, and extension fighting, and is a former professional boxer and MMA fighter, as well as competitive bodybuilder. And he has been featured in the NBC TV series, Stars Earn Stripes, and Discovery Channel's One Man Army. Dale is also the author of American Badass, the true story of a modern day Spartan. Dale, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me on the show, Lawrence. Appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So you're uh, you're over in Bali right now. So you're in Indonesia. That listen. Thanks for doing the the show. I know it's super early for you. What in God's name are you doing in Indonesia? Well, I actually live here. So I have a company here, security company in Bali, and. Uh, so I do security work here. I live here. My, uh, I have a wife here, family here. I also have a home in Florida, and uh, I have family there. So my, I keep a, I maintain a home in Florida for my daughter. She's 11 years old, and uh, so I maintain that for her and I when I go back, and then I have a home here. So that's what I'm doing in Bali, uh, living the dream, wake up every day, and uh, you know, in paradise, working. If you want to call it work, it's not even work because my security company specializes in explosive detector dogs, narcotic dogs, and patrol attack dogs. And I provide security for like the Marriott properties, hotels, and the local venues. So um, I've been training dogs for 45 years. And so, you know, basically I've turned a hobby into a, a job. And uh, if you want to call it a job, so I wake up every day to play with my dogs and, and uh, make money from them and live in Bali. How cool is that? <laughs> that that's amazing. Uh, you know, I I got to say I I read the book, and I mean it it's it's a whirlwind of a book, and uh, there's so much you you've done so much. I mean, I, I don't even think I mean I don't even think I got through your entire bio, and there's so much in it. I had to cut it short. I mean, you're a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> well, <just> a bit. <laughs> I'm actually a high achiever, not overachiever. <laughs> gotcha. High achiever. Definitely a high achiever. So um, I want to kind of jump in with, uh, with the title of the book itself, because, you know, you see yourself as a modern day Spartan. You're wearing the shirt. You got the Spartan shirt on. Um, yes, I do. <laughs> so, you know, you see yourself as this, uh, as this true to life Spartan uh, in the modern era. How, how is that? How so? How are you a modern day Spartan? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think most people have seen the movie 300, you know, and, uh, you know, the Spartans and, uh, you know, the, you know, that whole, uh, history behind it. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, 
it's easy to be a soldier, I guess, um, to some degree. But uh, I look at myself as more than that because, I, you know, in my in my military career, I was a long range reconnaissance scout in 82nd Airborne Division, an infantry guy. Um, I was a Green Beret. I was a Delta Force operator. I worked for OGA for nine and a half years, doing the same thing I did in the military with uh, a lot less Americans by my side, more indigenous, but doing the same uh, same dangerous type of work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually took it to another level. Um, I actually have worked as, besides a security contractor, per se, um, I've also worked as, and you know, people kind of frown when you say mercenary, but uh, the reality is I worked as a mercenary. I was a soldier for hire uh, for governments, foreign-friendly governments, and uh, I won't clarify that. So, you know, because I know people start rolling their eyes, go, oh my God, you know, that's illegal, and blah, blah, blah. No, actually, it's not illegal to work as a mercenary for a foreign-friendly country as long as that country is friendly to the United States and uh, in, al in aligned with them. So, um, you know, so I, I've done that kind of work, which I thought to me was being the, you know, when I was in the, when I was in the Army, everybody looked at, you know, Green Beret as the next level. And then uh, every Green Beret out there thought, man, the final, they, you know, I've heard the term, the final frontier would be a Delta Force operator because, you know, it was, uh, you know, that was the ceiling and there was only so many guys that could make it there. And, uh, you know, that was, again, the final frontier. And then, uh, and then after I got there, I heard that after that, working for, you know, the other government agency, Mm -hmm. um, there was a there was an element in that that it uh, that was the final frontier. And it was um, to some degree because it was even more difficult than getting into Delta. Um, and then I realized there's actually one more final frontier. It's the ultimate. Uh, uh, I don't know if this is a good term to use, but warriorhood, if you will, and that was being a mercenary. So I say that because in the military and the government I worked for, you always had. Um, you had topside support, you had backside support, you had, you know, what we call big mill, the big military to come in and back you up. If you got in trouble, you had, you know, medical air support. Whereas a mercenary, um, at least in my case, you don't have anything but what you bring to the fight or what you can buy off a black market and, uh, and use. And so to me, it was, there was no, there was no uh, air support, there was no medical support, there was no QRF that was going to come and get you out if you were in trouble. Um, you were out there on your own, and it was mano a mano. You and the bad guy, basically the same equipment, whatever, whatever it was, no matter how primitive it was. And it was, uh, it came down to, you know, your your warrior skills. Who had the better skills? Who was the, you know, the better strategist? Um, who was, uh, you know, who was more tenacious in battle? That was who's going to win. So, to me, I thought that was the final frontier. You know, do away with all the the high speed equipment. Um, know and go to combat with just the basics um that most you know the most elementary you know fighters out there would have go go to war with them with that and uh and let your skills be the uh you know the determining factor of you know of the winner or the losing the battle you know so that to me was the ultimate final front you know the final frontier and i felt like that was about as close as it got to being a spartan or a gladiator um you know, so it was really came down to your your physical prowess, your mental prowess, your skill sets um, compared to the other man. And, uh, and when I say the other man, you know, in, in case of being a mercenary, uh, you know, I'm talking about terrorists. You know, I didn't I didn't go to war with soldiers. Um, 
you know, let soldiers go to war with soldiers, but my job was to go after terrorists, you know, high value targets, you know, the guys that were financing, you know, terrorism, um, the high level guys that, uh, that needed to get spanked. And uh, right. so, you know, to me that again, like I said, you know, that was to me what I thought was, you know, the ultimate, you know, uh, warriorhood. That was to me being the Spartan. Uh, that was being like a gladiator. So to me, that was that was the final test of my skills. You know, could I do that? And so um, that's kind of how I define it. Why I define it that way. And uh, actually, the the moniker was kind of assigned to me by Senator Alan West, who's a good friend of mine. And he okay. was one of the guys that endorsed my book. And if you read his, uh, you know, his endorsement on the back, he mentions that, uh, you know, he considered me an American, uh, American Spartan. So modern day warrior, modern day Spartan. It's kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and just, just to clarify with some of the, uh, the acronyms for my audience, I know when we say OGA, other government agency, um, and you know, again, you don't have to attest to this, but I'm assuming that means CIA. <laughs> the alphabet company. <laughs> <laughs> the alphabet yeah. soup. But um, uh, with that said, uh, I want to quote you from your book. So you say that it wasn't about killing the enemy. It was about protecting Americans from the wolf at the door, doing the heavy lifting, cleaning up the mess that for most was too hard to stomach. And it was a privilege to stand between them and death. So when you talk about Dale, protecting Americans from the wolf at the door, you know, where did all that start? It would be great to hear your story about why you joined the military in the first place and then why you embarked on becoming a part of the U.S. Army Special Forces, Green Berets, then, of course, Delta Force, a.k.a. the unit. Yeah, so um, I remember it was about a while back. My mom asked me one day, uh, you know, she knew what I was doing, and she asked me, she said, you know, why are you, you know, why are you doing this, you know, because I was married, I had kids, you know, and here I am going down range on a regular basis for very long periods of time. Um, nobody knew where I was at. A lot of times you never heard from me again for a long time. And uh, for her, that was very concerning. It's like, you know, you're a married man, you have children, you know, the responsibilities are to them, you know, so why are you doing this? And I remember I looked at her and I thought about it for a second. I go, well, mom, if, if I don't do it, who will? Right? And uh, it's not like people are lining up to do this kind of work, you know, especially men with wives and kids, you know. And, uh, and a lot of the younger guys don't have that, uh, they don't have that experience, you know, to, to do this kind of stuff. So that was my answer. But uh, what, what, what kind of brought me into this profession I was actually born into it. So my father was in the army for 20 years and I grew up in the military culture. Um, I was raised, you know, all across the country, um, spent most of my childhood raised in Germany. My mother's German. So, uh, you know, I was raised there um, with my German family and my American, you know, of course, my, my family. And uh, it was a natural fit. You know, the military culture is different from the civilian culture. Um, very different. At least it was in my era coming up. And, uh, 
you know, I felt comfortable there. I like being a, I like the whole warrior thing. You know, my dad, I watched my dad go, you know, he went to Vietnam and uh, I watched him go to the field with his, with his army gear, you know, the old, uh, you know, steel pot, the old, you know, L, you know, LBE, LCE and, you know, and, uh, for a young impressionable boy, you know, to see that was wow. You know, I want to be like that. You know, I want to, I want to wear the helmet and play with the guns. And, and so my friends and I, growing up, would play army all the time. Man, it was a huge pastime. You know, um, or, you know, it was just amazing. You know, when I look back at my childhood, you know, we'd be out there for hours all day and at night. You know, and uh, having little wars and skirmishes. You know, and wearing our dad's equipment. You know, when my dad, our dads weren't in the field. You know, they had all the gear at home and we'd wear their gear, you know, canteens and helmets and stuff. And so um, it was a, you know, I love that stuff, you know, and uh, and I, I missed it as I got a little bit older because when my dad retired, I was 16 mm-hmm. and uh, we moved to, of all places, San Francisco, uh, Fremont, you know, uh, Fremont, California, the area. And for a kid that was spending his entire life growing up in the military culture, suddenly you you're in Fremont, California, San Francisco. Uh, I was like a fish out of water. You know, the kids were different. Um, you know, they were. I mean, the whole mindset was different than a child that that was reared in the military, military culture. You know, there's a different type of discipline. Um, you know, in, in the in the military culture, there's a commonality. We all recognize that, and know that, even though it may not be spoken. We know that all our fathers were soldiers. You know, and we were in this, you know, in a military school, so to speak. And uh, and so when I was outside of that, it just didn't feel right. It just did not feel right. I was very uncomfortable. I had no friends, um, absolutely zero friends. I remember I couldn't, for some reason, I just couldn't make friends. And uh, it was very weird, very weird. I became very isolated, very uh, almost introverted, you know, and uh, I spent a lot of time just lifting weights and working out, you know, and doing, you know, doing my thing, you know, because I had no one else to, to hang out with. And uh, it was at some point I realized, man, I have got to go back to the old way, you know, of living, which is the military. And so my father, so my mother, on my mother's side and my father's side, nobody had a college education. In fact, my dad had a lover's grade education. My mom had a ninth grade education. And, uh, I was supposed to be the one that goes to college, you know, the first. And uh, my, school was my dad's dream, you know, to see his son go to college. And uh, I knew that. And to be honest with you, I was a piss poor student. You know, I didn't do well in school. Uh, I just, the reason I didn't, didn't do well in school is because I moved around a lot in high school. Because my, you know, the military, you know, I, I went in four years, I went to four different high schools and usually changed high schools in the middle of the year. And so, you know, that was very problematic. I had a hard time assimilating fast enough and getting back to, into the group of things and keep my grades up. So I was like barely making D's, you know, as a D, F student on a good day, I, I might've got a C, but uh, I was just, had a hard time. And uh, so school did not appeal to me anymore. Um, and so I didn't even tell my dad about it, but one day I just snuck down at recruiter's office. I knew what I wanted to do and I enlisted to be a ranger. And, uh, and then when I told him, I had done I could tell his eyes he was very disappointed you know I broke his heart and uh so I made the promise to him I said well you know I can't undo the enlistment I'm signed up you know I'm on my way in dad I said but you know I'll I'll promise to get my college degree you know and and still check that block 
And so, um, and that's what I did. So I, I went into the army. Um, I did get my, my bachelor's degree. I got my master's degree while I was in the army. I got my doctorate uh, thereafter. And, uh, which was not an easy feat when you consider my entire military career. I was spent spending the infantry, the LERPs, 82nd. I was a Green Beret as a Delta Force operator. Um, it's not like I had, you know, a nine to five job. Um, I spent, you know, years and years and years downrange in the jungles and the deserts, um, you know. And so for, in order for me to fit in all that schooling, means I had to sacrifice something, which was my personal time. I made it a point not to sacrifice my family time when I was home. So I mean, I had to carve out more time during the day or the night um, to, to do my studies. And that meant, you know, getting up at one o'clock in the morning, you know, burning midnight oil and uh, studying, that's what I had to do. That meant, you know, instead of going to lunch, you know, going into the corner somewhere and reading my books, that's what I had to do. So, um, you know, and anyway, so that's, that was kind of my, how I got into the military. I, you know, my, my reasoning behind it was really a passion for a certain type of uh, lifestyle that uh, I have yet to find in the military, in the civilian world. Um, even now, it's a, it's a big adjustment for a lot of veterans to get out of the military, if they spend any significant time in the military, get out and immerse themselves in the civilian world. It's really awkward. And uh, it's actually very frustrating because honestly, the civilian world works very slow compared to the military. Um, it's, it's, a, it's amazing that we've made this much progress in our history at the, at the rate that we work, you know? And I'm, I'm like, man, we could have achieved so much more if everybody had a military mindset, the same work ethics. You know, the military, if you're told to do something, it wasn't like, yeah, I'll get back to you in two weeks. It was like, it's done right now, you know? And, uh, you know, whatever it takes, I'll get it done right now. You know, that's how we operate in the military. In the civilian world, it's like it takes everybody forever to make a decision, you know? And then they got to have all these, you know, boards and, you know, and panels to study the, the, the problem and you know, pick up the solutions, you know, like, the hell you know i'm just asking to go down and buy some you know supplies some paper supplies for a printer you know why is that gonna be such a major operation so anyways um you know big difference and uh but you know at some point you can't you can't be a soldier forever although i try to be a soldier forever um you know my my last uh, my last real combat deployment was in 2015 2016 in yemen okay. and uh i enlisted in the army in 1981 so i've been going at it for a long time and uh Reality is um, that that lifestyle is so ingrained in me. I have such a lust for it that uh, anytime I'm given the opportunity to go back down range and uh, you know call it trigger time, you know I'm more than happy to jump on that bandwagon and go, knowing how risky it is. Um, you know because it's just one of those things you just got to keep going back to the well and take a drink. You know, and uh, I'm sure one of these days I might fall in that well if I'm not careful, but. Uh, Getting a little older, and uh, you know my priorities are starting to change. I'm focusing more on my business, my business development, you know, and my my family, my children, and more importantly, I'm just focusing now on just being happy, man. You know, and I'm not to say I wasn't happy before, but now it's like I'll, uh, I get to get up when I, I wake up when I want to wake up and go to bed when I want to go to bed. You know, I I have a lot more freedom, you know, and I'm not constrained by the mission, not constrained by, you know, the leadership, what they need me to do. You know, it's like, I am the leadership. I can do what I do when I do it. <laughs> so, right. Right. 
Listen, I, you know, a lot of people uh, would say that you're living the dream, especially doing what you're doing in Bali. Um, but the passion you had, uh, you know, must have been fully expressed uh, when you were, were in, when you were in the unit, when you were in Delta Force. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to quote you from the book. You say that Delta selection is an individual effort. Soldiers are given very limited but specific instructions to perform for days on end in austere conditions. The physiological challenge, the isolation, wears down their will to win. The psychological and emotional head games that they play are theirs alone, manifested from their own fears and doubts. The attrition rate is the highest in the military, and the chances of success are unlikely, even for the most physically and mentally adept. So what differentiates Delta Force, or the unit, from all the rest of um, Special Forces or SOF, you know, what is it about the unit that is just so much harder, so much more esteemed? I think they call, I think you're called a tier one operator. Yeah. Um, so if you look at, uh, you know, for example, the SEALs, right? They have bloodstream. Uh, you look at the Ranger School, you have Special Forces. You look at all these other military units, and what when they when you go through the selection process, you go through as a group, okay? Okay. Then I, the guys running down the street, you know, the beach in a group carrying logs, you know, and getting wet, rolling around the sand, right? So, um, <clears throat> so imagine in that type of scenario, you could be a weak, you could be weak, right? And and but you're getting help from the rest of the guys that carry the log, for example, right? Um, or you know, you become empowered when you see other guys to your left and right, you know, giving it their all. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna give my all too because you know they're doing it. So you kind of you kind of bleed a little bit of the energy from everybody else to keep it going, right? It's easy to hide among the crowd, right? Eventually, you know, the cadway, you know, they'll single you out, they'll pick you out, you know, and, and uh, hopefully weed you out of the group, but. Uh, but you can make it through, you know, some camouflage, so to speak. I've seen it happen in the Q Force for Special Forces, where guys that had no business being in Special Forces were able to basically remain in the shadows on the backside, you know, keep them under the radar and kind of squeak through, knowing that, uh, you know, they really weren't they weren't there for the right reasons, and uh, nor did they deserve to be there because of their attitude. So, um, so the difference is with the Delta Selection Program. Um, you don't go through as a group, okay? There's no team effort. There's no group events. Um, everything's an individual effort, okay? So you're isolated. Um, you're, you're, you're given very limited instruction. You're told basically, you know, what to do, but not how to do it or how fast to do it. You don't know what the minimum standards are. Um, you're just told do the best you can. So when you look at the cadre and you go, if you ask them, well, how much time do I have, sir? Do the best you can. Okay, what, you know, what does that mean? And so you basically go through the entire selection course. And by the way, the cadre, because I was a cadre also for a couple of, about three, three different uh, courses, classes. And uh, 
catch is very stone faced, right? There's no emotion. Um, there's no there's no discourse. It's very it's very direct. And not only that, you're not even you're not even acknowledged by your name. You're assigned a color and number, right? So you know you you, you are you are basically Mr. Anonymous among every all the other anonymous people. And uh, and when they're addressing you, there's no smiling. There's no you know there's no uh, um, scowling. There's nothing. It's just stone face. Very specific instructions. Do the best you can. Well, that's it. Best you can. <laughs> you know, but 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 do the best you can. Like, okay, shit. And so you go right, and you do the best you can. And you don't know what the best is, right? You don't know if it's good enough. And so what happens is, when you do this day in and day out, day in night, and you're doing the best you can, the best you can in your mind is go as hard and fast as you can, and hope that it's you know it's more than a minimum. Um, and, uh, and so that kind of pressure physiologically will wear you down. And so what happens is that you, that your body starts to break down. Okay. Then, then the psychology steps, you know, comes in and that is the self doubt, you know, the, you know, and when your body starts going out, it has a mental, um, you know, it's, it's almost draining mentally on you you know it's debilitating you start to doubt yourself you start uh you start getting emotional um start you know all these questions start going through your head and then you ask yourself why why am i doing this you know why am i hurting myself <laughs> and uh you know and so all the all these emotions come to play and uh, and basically what they're doing is they're letting you break yourself down physically they're not breaking you down you're breaking yourself down you know, if you want it bad enough, you're going to do the best you can. And in, in that process of doing the best you can, you're going to physically start destroying yourself. And when that happens, your mind starts to go behind it. And so you get to a point where your body is useless. Um, and basically, the only reason it's still functioning is because your willpower in your mind is telling you to keep going. Pick one leg up in front of the other one. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. You know, and then you start having these conversations, you know, um, actually you start really having a conversation out loud with yourself, you know, wow. God, why am I doing this? You know, come on, man. You know, is it really worth it? You know, and you start, you know, am I, you know, God, am I, am I a sissy or, you know, if I got this, you know, you start, all this stuff starts going through your head and every day becomes an emotional play for you. And uh, with every other day, it gets worse and worse and worse. And then before you know it, you know, you're this... You know, you're, you're this walking, psychotic, you know, maniacal <laughs> creature that, you know, it's like, you know, you're, you're almost like a zombie, you know. And so therein is the stress. Stress is what you put on yourself. Does it work? Hell yeah. I can tell you right now, um, I don't care how big and bad and how tough and mentally tough you think you are, uh, it will break you down. And, and I'll put it in perspective for numbers. Uh, so selection is run twice a year. They canvass the entire military looking for applicants, right? And you have to meet certain requirements, certain minimum requirements. Um, and so if you can meet all those minimum requirements, they send you a letter saying, hey, you met all the, the minimum requirements to apply. Okay, just to apply. Put your paperwork in and apply. Like, oh, okay. So then you apply, and then you go through another vetting process. They look at your application, and you go, Yes, no. Okay, you you you're allowed to now come to the, the next phase of it, which is um, 
psychological evaluation, written psychological, psychological evaluation, physical fitness tests, um, background checks, um, a lot of questions, right? And so you got to get through that gate. If you're lucky to get through that gate, then you get orders to go to the actual selection process, assessment selection process, right? So, wow, you, you know, it's like, when does, when does the selection end? I'll tell you when the selection ends. It never ends, okay? Those were the words given to me by my man, Sergeant Major, when I finally made it to the squadron and I reported in proudly, he looked at me and he's, congratulations, you know, you're one of the few guys that made it here. He goes, but I want to remind you, he goes, selection's a continuous process. Just because you're here don't mean you're in forever. He goes, when you can't give 100% every day, you're out of here. Damn. You know, so, um, so then you go through the assessment selection course. That's the part that's the the long, you know, the long walk, so to speak, you know, and uh, it's, it's, the, it's the part that's going to make you or break you. Well, uh, and so you just done twice, twice a year. In my particular class, and I think it was an anomaly, um, there were, I believe if I remember right, there were about 110 candidates. Of the 110, six of us uh, completed the course, and of the six that completed the course, three of us were selected. And at that time, I was the youngest guy to ever selected at the age of uh, 23. Okay. Um, most guys were about 33 that made it through the course. They had a lot more experience than I did. So I had four years in the Army. I was out of the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, I just knew how to carry everything on my back and dig, dig holes <laughs> just to fill them back up. Um, and, uh, you know, I was uh, married, just married. I had a little baby girl. And uh, I certainly didn't have the military experience that a lot of these other guys had. But I did have the heart to make it. And so um, and there I was. And that's how I got through this, that whole process. So um, by far, I, I would tell you, you know, I've been through the Q course selection process, all that. And uh, again, it's a lot easier when you're going through with a group of guys. Um, yeah, you still have to do the work, but uh, it's a lot easier to hide in the, in the, in the you know, in the, uh, hide in the crowd, you know, and uh, be that, that, that gray man in there sometimes and, and pass some things. So, you know, so Delta selection is, I, I will argue that it is by far the hardest selection process in the world. Just look at the numbers, uh, the attrition rate, how high it is, the selection process. And uh, people ask, well, you know, um, you know, what kind of man does, you know, the unit select, you know? Mm-hmm. You just got to be tough. You got to be able to walk a long way, you know, that kind of stuff. Nope. Um, in fact, Delta Force doesn't select the best man. They select the right man. And that's, that's the difference, the right man, you know? Right. You go to SEALs and everything else, you know, it's the best guy, the guy that meets all those minimum standards, can run the fastest, jump the highest, you know, swim the longest. Um, but uh, Delta, it's not really about how physically fit you are, it's how mentally fit you are. Can you operate unilateral? Can you, can you go out and represent the United States Army? You know, can you stand in front of congressmen and generals um, and make very important decisions as a buck sergeant? the Delta Force, right? That's what they're looking for. Um, they're looking for a guy that's, a, as we termed him, a thinker who's a shooter. Not a shooter who's a thinker, a thinker who's a shooter, right? And so that's, that's the, again, difference. Um, it's, the, it's the right guy, um, the right guy with above average IQs, um, the, you know, the right guy that can make mature, professional, responsible decisions, um, the guy that can do the right thing when nobody's looking. Wow, and it, and Dale, is that is is that kind of training and selection process geared the way it is because 
Delta operators will be sent out, you know, maybe on their own uh, or in, in, a, in a lot of instances uh, with very little support and not as a, not as a, a team potentially. Whereas the other, whether you're the Rangers or the Seals, you're going out on a, on a, on a bigger mission with a bigger group. Yeah. So as a Delta Force operator, you're expected to operate unilaterally um, as well as a team. And here's the other thing about what is an operator. So that term, you know, okay, it's been around before Delta. It was used for like OSS, which was the original origins of uh, special forces. But uh, nobody in the military was uh, considered an operator right now. Now that that term has been hijacked by everybody, I even know cops that call themselves operators. Like what? And so, but they don't know why. You know, they're called an operator. Right now, you're a seal operator. You're you're a green beret operator. You're a ranger operator. You know, you're you know a truck driver operator. <laughs> uh, but you know, an operator. Reason we were operators is because, um, you know, we worked in different guises, so to speak. You know, today I might be a soldier. Tomorrow I might be and next week I'm working as a, I'm working for another government agency as one of theirs, right? So I, I wore different hats. And so I wasn't always a soldier per se. Um, and so what do you call a guy like that, you know? If you're not a soldier today, well, then you're an operator, or an operator right? So the agency, you know, the term is, you know, more appropriately called operative. Um, but in the unit, it was operator. And the reason it was that way as well, because actually probably more importantly, it's because of the promotion uh, situation, right? So if I, was in, if I was a Green Beret, but I was a Delta Force operator, and then it was time for me to get promoted, and the promotion board came up, I'm competing against other Green Berets, right, that are not in Delta. And so how do I distinguish myself from those guys, right? Because I'm doing a different job. They're doing a different job for me, but we're being evaluated by the same Special Forces Board, right? So a Special Forces Board has to understand that yeah, this guy's an operator. His mission, what he does, is different from his peer group over here in the Green Berets, right? So there has to be a, a, a discriminator as well. So that's where that term came from. But it sounds really cool, and uh, <laughs> and people just started like adopting it. Like yeah, I'm an operator too. You know, I'm special. You know, I'm high speed. I'm just high speed as those guys. Um, wow, I've had I've had Marines contact me, you know, and throw me under the bus because you know they were operators. Like, really, a marine operator? Like, what does that mean? You're like a boat driver? <laughs> but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, everybody wants to be special, but nobody wants to, you know, they don't want to pay the dues. And uh, unfortunately, that, you know, that is something that's very, you know, very common. In fact, it was one of the reasons I got out of the Army in 2001 is I saw this whole, uh, you know, I remember his name was uh, General Sh uh, uh, Shinseki. He came to a ceremony on Fort Bragg at Yusasak, uh, and there was a bunch of Green Berets in formation. And uh, he was not a Green Beret. In fact, he had a tanker's background, and he shows up, and he sees all these Green Berets. Like, wow, he was really impressed with the Green Berets, right? Now, the Green Beret was actually awarded to Special Forces by Kennedy, John Kennedy. Right. Um, and so um, to distinguish you know, these men and what their mission was, right? Because it was held in very high esteem. Going all the way back to, you know, actually going all the way back to World War II, but particularly uh, Vietnam. And uh, he was so impressed with that, 
right there on the spot. He made a command and said, I want everybody in the Army to wear green berets. Everybody. And not green berets, but berets, right? And so what did he do? He hijacked the black beret from the Rangers, put everybody in black berets, which was really a kick in the balls because they, they owned that, that black beret, right? That distinguished them, right? That, that black beret was something that uh, – it was a trophy that a lot of guys wanted, you know, and that's and tried for that to go to range school. He just he just took it from him and he plopped it on everybody's head in the army. Every every cook, you know, every clerk, everybody out there got to, got to feel special. You get to feel like a you get to feel like a you know a ranger. You get to wear the black beret. Right. And uh, and and I and I thought about that. I was like, wow, you know, what, what's the point that? The point was he wanted everybody to feel good about it. He wanted to raise your esteem, you know, to wear a black beret in the army. And uh, and so you know. It was a real slap in the face to special forces, special operations, rangers, you know. And I started seeing a lot more of this creeping in. It was, you know, it was no longer about substance as much as it was about image. And uh, the Army was going through a, a transition at that time that I did not like. Um, standards were being lowered or thrown completely out um, to accommodate everybody. Um, in fact, I had guys come into my um, unit from basic training that uh, didn't have to pass the PT test physical fitness test and basic training. I was like, well, if you fail, no big deal. When you get to, you know, they'll, 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 they'll train you, get you up to speed. You know, I had guys coming to my special forces team. They couldn't swim. They, they threw out the swim requirements because certain people can't swim that well. Wow. And, uh, and it wanted to be more inclusive. So I had guys knocking on my team door going, hey, can you swim? No, I had a water team. And I had a water team. It's like, when you showed to my team, you should know how to swim because we might actually go on a mission tomorrow. And I need everybody to be able to swim. You're telling me you can't swim? I got to take you to the pool and teach you how to swim. That ain't like something you teach somebody overnight, right? And so it was that mindset that was creeping in um, that was really, really starting to, you know, get very disgusting. In fact, uh, I remember even the combatives hand-to-hand program. You know, there's a ban on any kind of combatives. You know, like you know, I couldn't compete in any. Even though I did, I actually boxed professionally in the army. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a ban that came down. You know. um, you're the quiet professional. You shouldn't be fighting, you know, you know, fist fights and this and that and that. And, and uh, you know, participating in MMA fights and they'll, you know, it's a sport, right? Um, because they won the quiet professional. You know, they won the, the executive Green Beret. The guy that shows up in a suit the Green Beret, you know, and it was like, it made no sense. You know, why are you watering this thing down? Because we want to make it all inclusive. We want to build everybody. And uh, I just had enough of that, you know, and I put my paperwork here and said, I'm out of here, you know. Um, so things, you know, ebbs and, ebbs and flows, depends on who's in charge. Um, you know, then the wars happened and everybody kind of got there, got reoriented again in the right direction for a minute. And then, uh, certain leadership came in the office and decided that everybody should be allowed in the military. And, you know, they, again, I almost feel like it was a conspiracy to demoralize the military and actually, uh, dilute it, dilute its capability. Um, for really social and political reasons. And uh, mm. I mean, I can go on all day about that and I'll probably piss a lot of people off if I get my true opinion here. But, uh, you know, there's, there's just some things that, uh, you know, you just don't, you just don't screw with. If, if it's working, don't, don't fix it, right? Um, right. Don't, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And uh, there's this mindset out there, well, let's just break it. And then, uh, you know, and then just, let's just run it like it's broken. So what? You know? uh, anyways, um, I ramble, but um, no, no, it's fascinating. It, it you yeah, know, I, 
you could see, I, I would have never thought that what was going on in the culture at large at the time, which I, I know you're alluding to, which is that whole mindset of everyone deserves a trophy and how that, how that whole mindset was starting to infect civilian life. I had no idea that it was penetrating the elite level within yeah. the warrior class. And that's shocking. Yeah. Absolutely. Think about this. Think about this. Um, so, look, I spent a lot of time in the infantry um, and special forces, obviously. And I can tell you demographically, at least during my era, I would say 99.999% of all the members in those organizations were conservative, were, you know, they believed in the American Constitution. They were true blue Americans. They, they were like me. They grew up playing Army, believing in John Wayne. Mm -hmm. um, you know, believing in patriotism and, uh, you know, fighting communism, you know, all those things. And that's who, those are the kind of men that go to those kind of groups, right? And uh, it's not always white guys. He's actually, there's, a, there's quite a few Hispanics in, the, in those organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and there were black guys, you know, um, not as many, but they, they were there, you know, those that kind of, you know, thought, the, you know, thought the same way. But, uh, um, but it, you know, and then we came along, you know, the whole, you know, idea, let's put women in, you know, in combat units, you know, and, uh, you know, and then my problem with that was, um, and I've been with women in the field, and it was a train wreck. Every time it's a train wreck, um, every time, because the reality is this, you know, what men do, what men do, women do what they what women do. I don't care how professional you think you are at mm -hmm. some point, especially under stress, um, under certain circumstances, things start to devolve, right? Mm -hmm. And then, then, you know, and we go back to a lot of our final ways. I've had women say, well, man, should just keep their, you know, their, their tool in their pants, you know? It's like, well, you know what? It's not just men. Women are just as promiscuous as, uh, women are just as promiscuous as men. Uh, I've seen it happen down there. I've seen some really weird stuff happen. And I've seen a lot of people lose their careers um, over things that should have, would have never happened had they're not integrated and everybody's like well you know they deserve a chance too well you know you can't tell me especially feminists you can't tell me that uh you know um feminism you know you know women are not equal to men but on the other hand you want to be equal to men you know you are equal to men i'm like which one is it because you know what in the infantry for example imagine this you got 11 man uh rifle squad 11 guys mm -hmm. same cut of cloth same mindset will die for each other you know they'll die for this flag and what they believe in you know um they'll you know that's the kind of men you have out your soldiers mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're throwing in start throwing in some you know some liberal think right it comes into the same and before you know it you know it's when you're told go attack that bunker and take it out you know before you know it now you have a debate well can we just negotiate with them maybe we just go around them and go somewhere else you know can't have that man you gotta have you gotta have unit uh you know unity in, in your in your in your think unity in your mission um conformity in the process there's got to be your uh, you know your one mind your one collective that works together to, to the same objective as soon as you start introducing conflicting um thoughts motivations and reasons for their existence in that organization uh it starts to unravel i've seen it personally um, I've seen it happen and I'm like, Christ Jiminy, man. Um, I had, I had an incident one time, kind of funny actually. So I, I ended up working in, uh, 
what we call the Group S3 shop. It was the operations shop. I had a, the only time I ever had a desk job in the Army for a year and a half. For 20 years, it was the only time that I, you know, got to kind of chill my jets a little bit. I had an office job, so to speak. And in my office, I had different MOS, right? Guys that were, you know, they were ammunition experts, right? They, 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 they ordered all the ammunition. I had other guys that were focusing on, you know, whatever, communications gear. I had other guys that focused. I had one, I had a woman, a buck sergeant, and she was an illustrator, right? All she did was make PowerPoint presentations for the commander. That was her job, right? And, uh, and uh, then I had this private that just came in who wasn't the, uh, at the time, he wasn't too sharp, man. He actually turned out to be a good soldier later in life. Um, but uh, at the time, he was just really, really confused um, as to what he was supposed to do and why he was there. And uh, I remember I was constantly, he was like sad sack, you know, as his non-commissioned officer. I'm constantly in his ass trying to get him to do the right thing, you know. And, you know, I, gotta, I had to constantly babysit this guy. So he didn't get in trouble, and I didn't get in trouble because he's getting in trouble, right? So, and... Uh, like we always had to wear a badge, right? Because where we worked, we had to, you know, had to have a badge to get in. He'd always get his badge, you know, like Jesus Christ, you know. And uh, it was always one of those things. Well, I remember one day um, he broke a really a big rule, and the rule was you never put a military weapon in a privately owned vehicle. And we were drawing weapons from the arms room, which was um, around the corner, and we were going to go do I think a parachute jump with the weapons, and so. He leaves the arm room, gets in his car with his, with his M16, or M4 at the time, and he drives off with it around two back to the unit, and somebody saw him. Well, dude, that's the kiss of death, man. That is Article 15. Um, you know, that's an Article 15 violation, right? So, um, they, before he even got to the office, I already got the phone call, you know, Private Clarkson, you know, he, blah, 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 blah. Oh, God, you know, here we go, right? So, <laughs> and it's pretty severe, right? Uh, weapons accountability is a big, big deal, man. Um, big deal in the military. You lose a weapon anywhere at any time, man, everything stops. Everything stops the place until that weapon is located. And uh, so by the time he got to the office, I was waiting for him, and I just had to, you know, on one hand, I'm just shaking my head going, geez, what am I going to do with this guy, you know? And... Uh, I decided, well, if you're going to be dumb, I'll make you strong. So, <laughs> so you know, get down and start doing push-ups, right? I'm going to make you push-ups, do push-ups till you puke, you know? And uh, this butt sergeant, she saw what was going on, and I was within my right, you know, to, you know, I could have done worse with the guy. I could have wrote him up an article 15, you know? Mm -hmm. I could have taken his money. I could have, you know, taken away whatever rank you already have, which wasn't anything at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I opted, you know, well, let's just, you know, let's just do the physical fitness part of this, this exercise. So, and she lost her mind, right? Oh my God, that's so cool. You know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Are you, this, is a, this is another non-commissioned officer. And, uh, you know, we went round and round. And I remind her, I'm a master sergeant. You know, I rank her like, like three stripes. But uh, she wouldn't have a none of it, you know. And complain up and down the chain of command that, you know, it's wrong, it's so cruel to do that. Because her whole life, you know, as an illustrator, was basically, you know, pretty much insulated, you know. She didn't have to do anything but show up at an office and, and work on a computer. And so this whole, being this whole, being a soldier thing was like way outside of her, her realm, right? Because she really wasn't a soldier per se. And uh, so anyway, she, I mean, that was, you know, those were the kind of issues I had to deal with all the time. So wow. then I got lectured on, well, you know, maybe we can come up with a better solution, you know, rather make them do push-ups. I'm like, what else am I going to do with this guy? I said, okay, I'll make him go home this weekend. I'm going to make him write a 20-page essay on accountability and responsibility. Right? So that's what I did. 
I mean, it's been a whole weekend writing essays, right? And I thought, man, this is stuff that I would make my kids do, you know? Um, not a soldier, but uh, it got to that level for me, and I just threw my hands up, said, I'm out of here, you know? And uh, went on to do my thing in uh, corporate America and learned some hard lessons out there. You know, again, as I mentioned earlier in the program, they just don't, uh, they just don't move. They move like pond water, you know? They're, they're just, uh, just not as fast as the military, and, and the work ethic's not there. Um, I ended up working for a glass company for a minute for about three months, four months um, as a superintendent. And, uh, and it was like, I, I can't even describe it because I worked in an industrial park. They hired all the local civilians to run this plant, which was 350 people around the clock, you know, a shift work. And uh, it was like herding cats every day, you know, asking the guy to take the trash out of the office that he helped fill up with garbage was like asking him to cut off an arm, right? Wow. Like, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, it was insane. I mean, there was no, no discipline, no, no responsibility, you know? Um, you know, it was like, I'm not doing anything. I don't have to do anything extra, right? I'm not going to do anything other than my job, you know, exactly this, 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 damn, you know? Um, and so, and then I learned that I had very little power in corporate America, you know, because all the rules, you know, um, you know, that come down, you know, OSHA and everything else, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the unions, you know, it's like, wow, you know, and this is how, when we, when we guys are being kind of successful, yeah, you're successful, but I can make it a thousand times more successful if we just got rid of all the nonsense and, and apply the military mindset to business, you know, we're going to be knocking it out of the park, you know, uh, it's kind of weird, but uh, it was an adjustment, and I always tell my, my uh, you know, other soldiers that are getting out, military is you've got to become a chameleon you got to learn to adapt you got to learn how to blend in you're still the chameleon just be just change colors a little bit so you can fit in right you don't get eaten up by everybody else and uh if you can do that you can adapt apply your military mindset and skills that you learn in the military to what you're doing um you know you'll do okay and so you know there is a there is an adaptation to this whole thing and and a lot of guys a lot of veterans have a hard time making that adjustment and so they don't go far or they have a lot of problems and i say they have a lot of problems it's a lot of you know a lot of headbutt you know with uh, their peers and their supervisors and these corporations because um we don't think alike you know we just don't think alike in fact yeah. think of it like this most of the guys that come out of the military even if they weren't a leader in the military they still have leadership traits because they've learned them just through the military alone alone they've learned basic leadership traits and when you go to corporate America, most American corporate, um, you know, people at the corporate level, they call themselves leaders, but they're not the managers, okay? They don't even understand the difference between what is a leader and what is a manager, okay? A manager is not a leader. That's okay? right. A leader can lead and manage, but a manager, if you're, if you're a, a, a pure manager, good luck with being a leader. Well, you know, it'll be obvious right away you're not, you know? And usually a manager is a dictator, you know? A dick tater, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and I've seen them. You know, they just have no clue, and uh, and they and they rule with iron hand. They rule by force. They rule by threats. Um, whereas the leadership motivates and inspires people to be their best at everything they do. So you know, that's the advantage a lot of veterans have, and a lot of corporations do recognize that and uh, do like to hire veterans for that purpose. But uh, a lot of guys just have a hard time assimilating with. You know the corporate world just because it's a, almost like a us and them mentality. You know, I, 
I'm going to quote you again from the book because I think this encapsulates like where that thinking is and then having to put it into play in the civilian world. It, it's just, you know, I think emblematic of what you were just describing. So here's the quote. Who are these men? We are not average men in speaking, of course, of, of, of Delta and the unit. Although many of us look like the guy next door, mowing grass and getting bitched out by the wife because we haven't taken the trash out yet. We all are not necessarily these super athletic looking guys that we often see in the movies. What makes us larger than life are our hearts, our minds, our belief in the American way of life, and our dedication to preserving it. We are motivated by the glory of combat. We are not afraid to fight and eagerly go to battle because we are empowered by righteousness, courage, training, and honor. Men like this are so rare that some selection processes have yielded only one candidate. These are the men the rest of the military try to model themselves after. They are one. And in the hierarchy of military society, they are on the pinnacle. So you've got, you've got this, this absolutely phenomenal group of warriors. And then you got to come back into civilian life and see what you've seen uh, and just how mediocre everything is and how restricted and held back everyone is from even if they want to be even if they want to excel even if they want to express themselves at the height of their aggression and power and superiority and and their abilities there's all of there's there's all of these um you know um traps you know that that cause them to uh to fall and to fumble not because they're not uh ambitious but because the average and the mediocre are trying to hold them down. And what I'm wondering is, because I've met, I've met people who are not in the military, who, who do think like this, who, who do believe in excellence and are willing to push themselves to the limits and, and believe in honor and the American way and, you know, and, and, the, and you know, the culture of, of what made this country great. I know people like that, even though they haven't served. They're far and few between these days. What I'm wondering is how, what went into developing that ethos? How do you develop that ethos? Because given it's not being taught anymore and given how what you've just described is even the military is getting uh, watered down uh, you know, due to all of these cultural implications, you know, how, how do you how do you cultivate this ethos in people going forward? What what yeah. would be that cultivated ethos in you? So, all right. So the unit doesn't cultivate that. Okay, that's why they have a selection process. They're looking for those that already have that, right? And so, where does that come from? Um, in my case, it was the way I was brought up. I was brought brought up in a military culture, the military mindset. Uh, mm -hmm. I saw my father displayed what it meant to be a leader, you know, ethics, morals, all those things, right? Uh, what it meant to put on a uniform in the morning and make sure your boots are spit shine and your uniform is starched, you know, your hair is cut, discipline. Um, those things were already impressed upon me 
at a very early age, <laughs> since I was a baby, right? And uh, and so, you know, now a lot of the guys that are Delta Force operators, their fathers joined the military. So where do they get theirs from? It's also innate. In my case, I believe it was innate. I was born with that, and I was also um, nurtured with that through my father, right? So nature mm-hmm. and nurture. Um, for some guys, it's just nature and or for some guys, maybe their fathers and you know, or mothers set that same example, even though they wasn't in the military, right? As you just said, you know, they also had this, uh, you know, this pursuit of excellence, and they had these examples of excellence in their. Maybe their father was, I don't know, maybe he was a, you know, a baker, but he was an excellent baker, had that work ethos, right? And he pressed that on his kids. So you learn it from home, and I also believe you, 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 uh, you have it innately, right? Because I know a lot of good guys that went through had good examples growing up that didn't make it because they didn't have what we call the heart which is interesting an interesting point because when you go through the selection process if uh at any point you quit you walk up to the cadre and say sorry you know i like to voluntarily withdraw there, there's no harassment there's no laughing no giggling so watch that new 22 get your bags in the back of that truck stand, and get inside and wait Right now, off you go. There's no no fuss, no muss. And at the end, you get a little, you know, you have to go meet the commander. He's going to tell you, you know, all right, man, um, you know, here's your paperwork. Thanks for coming. And a lot of times guys will say, you know, because now they're, you know, they're cleaned up. They had some food, a little bit of rest, took a shower. <laughs> I think I could do that again. Hey, sir, you know, can I try again? Can I come back and try again? I think I can do it. And they'll answer it every time, unequivocally, without exception, is always no. You can have a change of mind, but you can't have a change of heart. Understand what that means? It means, yeah, you decided you couldn't do it, so you withdrew. You know, the truth is you didn't have the heart to complete it. And we're not looking for your mind as we're looking for a guy with heart. And uh, and so, you know, that's the kiss of death. If you quit voluntarily withdraw at any point, you will never, ever get another chance, period. Because what they've done is they've, They've analyzed and assessed your drive, your heart, your willingness to continue the mission under all circumstances, regardless of how hard it was, right? And um, and so, remember what I said earlier, when your body breaks down, then the mind breaks down. When the mind says, I'm broke down, I quit, because mm-hmm. my body's broke down, oh, well, you're never going to go back. It's the guy that has a broken body that continues to move on because the mind's saying, get off your ass, keep moving. I don't care if you both. I've actually have a friend of mine they completed the course with two broken legs. Two broken legs. Wow. Okay. Made it all the way through on two broken legs and got selected. But he didn't get to go to the unit for over a year because they sent him to uh, they sent him to a veterinarian in Texas to have steel rods implanted into his shin bones. He broke both shins uh, to repair his legs. And then they, then he came back after he had the uh, you know the uh, implants inserted. So um, so you know that. That drive that uh, they're looking for, it's a couple things. One, it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. They want a guy they know will never quit. You know, think about the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh, Randy Shugart, Gary Gordon, the Congressional Medal of Honor winners. Gary Gordon was on my team, you know, and uh, I knew I knew him, you know these guys very well. And those guys knew what they were going to get into. They didn't have to go, but they had the heart to go into. They had the heart to go into, you know. Um, you know, the mouth of madness and do what needed to be done irrespective of their lives, right? And so 
that's what the unit's looking for. They're looking for that kind of man. And that is a rare thing to find. I've watched men quit in combat. I've, I've seen men refuse to even go out the gate to go in to help their other fellow you know, Americans fight. Um, you know, it's, it's courage. It's more than just courage. Um, it's, it's a belief system that's ingrained in many of us, or was ingrained in many of us growing up. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's there or it's not. And the unit, only thing the unit does is help cultivate it, bring it even, polish it even more so, right? So um, we used to sit around, I remember, you know, during the during lunchtime, you know, in the, in the chow hall. And uh, we would, I remember having one conversation with the guys one time. We said, man, you know, this was pre 9-11. If uh, you know, if we got out, you know, we started a company together, we'd be, you know, indomitable, man. We could just own the world, man, because of our work ethic and our teamwork, you know. And what's interesting is there's a lot of truth to that because pre 9/11, I started a company called Global Security Consultants. I did very well. I actually hired other Delta operators. They didn't even know I was the owner of the company, um, but I actually owned. I, I hired these guys. Did very well. I sold my company to G4S in 2004. Um, Triple Canopy was founded by a Delta Force operator. In fact, he modeled his company after mine. Triple Canopy was modeled after my company. There's a long story behind it, but look at Triple Canopy today, they're huge, right? So, um, and again, it's because that that mindset. Here I am, I've never worked for anybody else since I got out of the military. In 19 years, I've always been self-employed, so to speak, right? I, I've worked for people as a contractor, but I was always my own boss. I made my own rules, decided when I wanted to work, how much I was gonna get paid, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, because I have that same mindset, uh, you know, I've traveled the world. I've lived in, worked in, or, or you know, or, or traveled to over 90 countries. Um, I just, you know, got a wild hair up my ass and came to Indonesia, you know, and looked around and decided, you know what, I'm going to start a security company here, you know. And when you put all that in perspective, uh, Indonesia is 97% Muslim, okay. And, and so, and by the way, Indonesian Muslims are not the same as Arabic Muslims. Uh, very different. Uh, that guy, I consider uh, Muslims here in Indonesia much more liberal. Um, of course, there's an extremist element here too, but for the most part, they're very, they're very liberal. Um, there's not these problems that you, you know can imagine. So, um, but you know, they they have a, an aversion to the dogs, right? So, right. I'm not saying they don't like dogs, but uh, you know, most Muslims are cat people. Dogs, they're considered dirt, uh, dirty. However, in, in Bali. Um, they love the dogs. So you got to call them Bali dogs. Bali dogs everywhere. They take good care of their dogs, you know, and uh, it's a big deal for them here. But uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start a canine company here in a 97% Muslim country, and they're going to like it. And I'm going to hire Muslims to work my dogs. And that's what I did. You know, I came in here, I was bold, I was audacious, but I had a mindset that uh, anything's possible if I set my mind to it because of the guy I am. And, uh, and that's what I was taught in Delta. Um, you, know, you know, I was told... You know, and we were, it was beaten in our heads on a regular basis that there is nothing a Delta Force operator can't do and be good at, right? And I remember uh, Colonel Garrison um, from Black Hawk Down, who was a, the uh, unit commander at the time, uh, he gave us, you know, had a little speech for us for my squadron, and he was talking about that very thing. He goes, what separates you guys from any other guy out there is that even though we don't have an artillery unit in Delta Force, if we were tasked with create a Delta, uh, an artillery unit and compete against the best artillery units in the military, he goes, we can, we can do it and we can be the number, we can be the champions. We can win. Why? We'll get all the equipment. We'll do all the training. We've got the right guys for the job. He says, ultimately, we will be number one. 
And, uh, and there's a lot of truth to that because uh, there was a time when we competed internationally um, with other counter-terrorists, including the SEALs. And, uh, and this competition was like an Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. The best, the best counter-terrorist units from around the world would come together, and it basically it was an Olympics event, right, to see who had the best, the best team, right? And, uh, and it was a big deal in the unit because we had to try out for it. Not anybody could be on that team. It was a small team. And so, to make a long story short, um, the unit always took the top five positions, whether it was shooting, um, you know, anything to do with athletics. In fact, we outswam the SEALs every time. We wow. outswam the SEALs, right? So um, that tells you something about the mindset of the, of the organization and the men that are in it. Um, are they Jason Bourne? They're about as close to Jason Bourne as it gets, um, to be honest with you. But it also, remember what you said earlier on, you know, we're the guys next door mowing the grass, getting pitched out by the wife, taking the trash out, right? <laughs> we're, we're actually, we're just regular guys, you know, with an extraordinary uh, mission, you know, you know, and uh, extraordinary responsibilities. And we take those because we are grounded in a belief system that, uh, you know, considers patriotism, the American way of life, freedom, you know, protecting the oppressed, you know, defending the oppressed, um, liberating the oppressed, um, doing the right thing, you know, irrespective of all the bad that, uh, you know, is around us. And, uh, and that's what sets us apart, you know, and I, I live by that ethos to this day. I was not a Delta Force operator. I am still a Delta Force operator. I will always be a Delta Force operator. I will always be a Green Beret. My mindset, I wasn't a Green Beret just when I was a Green Beret, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, a nine to five job. You are a Green Beret all the time. Um, unfortunately, some guys are not. I am. And that's why I'm sitting here today in my office in Bali talking to you with my company and doing the things I do, you know, um, looking the way I look, feeling the way I feel and enjoying life because of that mindset. Now, that's very interesting because, you know, and this is a good segue about, uh, for a question I wanted to ask you because there's also a downside for a lot of the guys um, that are operators, tier one operators at your level that are running so hot, that are so uh, constantly going out on hits, constantly dealing with the extreme violence. Uh, and, you know, ending up with PTS, for instance, I, you know, I, speaking of the battle of Mogadishu, I just had Tom Satterley on the show, right? And, you know, he's, he has struggled tremendously with, with PTS. Um, you know, he said a lot of the things you said about the mindset and how, how, you know, how he felt invincible. But when you, I guess when you take a fighter jet or a Ferrari, Right, and you run it, and 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 all it's capable of, uh, and then you have to take that incredible machine and put it back in civilian life, and and expect everything to be okay. It it is it isn't for a lot of the guys, and I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, is is that something that you've seen? Have you experienced BTS? Is it something you see with a lot of your your friends or colleagues from the past? Yeah, you know, um, I think PTSD affects everybody a little differently. Okay. And so I was diagnosed at one point with severe PTSD. And all right, so, but here's the difference, right? My PTSD has, it doesn't 
it doesn't stem from combat and the horror of fighting and dying and I might get killed and oh my God. For me, that's not that way. Um, my PTSD, and this is, and you're gonna find, you probably find this shocking. Um, it's not what people are gonna expect to hear from me, but my PTSD stems from something completely different. And it stems from this. You read the book, there's actually a chapter in there where um, I actually led a Delta unit um, even though I was in the, I led the Delta unit to a hit during the daytime. And there was a little boy on the street that actually was the son of the guy we were going after. And he wasn't on the road when I first came by. And when I came back, he was standing out there. He was only maybe two years old. And all of a sudden, we come screeching up. Everybody's jumping out with guns, and it's getting crazy. And uh, this kid just loses his mind, man. He's screaming and all. He sees all these masked men with guns assault in his house, right? And uh, and when I got out, all I could see was my two-year-old son, right? That's all I could see because when I saw him crying, I can still remember seeing my kid at two years old crying like that, right? Over something totally different, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and I, I just felt the pain that he was, and the hurt. And uh, it just really gripped me and to the point where I just, and I just I didn't know what to do other than grab the kid and pick him up and try to hold him and comfort him with, with a rifle in one hand and the kid in the other hand, you know, uh, on the street. And uh, it's those types of things, you know, it's seeing, you know, it's seeing dead kids, it's seeing dead women, um, it's seeing women and kids screaming for their lives as you're kicking in their doors going in after the old man, you know. Um, you know, it's those types of things. And, and, I, and I, I wrote it in the book, you know, so... You know, I killed a kid. It was an accident. I, I didn't mean to. He just, you know, he was a, a victim of a circumstance. You know, I was trying to defend my guys with, you know, with the booby traps and early warning systems because my guys were getting hammered all the time every night by the Taliban. And so I had a kid walk through one of my booby traps and killed him, a young kid, you know. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. I was on leave and when I came back I was told that they found the boy's body in a dump and uh and they explained what had happened to him you know basically he ended up in the dump after he got he walked through my booby traps blew him up and uh and then the father who sent him up there because he was going up there collecting and uh spent uh brass unexploded ordnance right he was out there you know um scrounging around you know scavenging for stuff mm -hmm. to make some money and uh, he walked through my booby trap and uh and so the father then turned around, sent the second boy up there, his second son, and blew himself up. But he didn't get killed, but, uh, you know, he was wounded. And when I came back, I heard all this. I, you know, that's a hard thing to, to deal with, right? Because, again, these were young boys, and I'm thinking about my son, and I'm thinking, man, you know, dad was sending them up there to make money, you know, and, uh, and this, now they're gone, you know. So, um, you know, those are things you got to internally, you have to, you know, you got to kind of resolve that, you know, and sometimes you never really can. And you're in this, this conflict there, you know, do I, do I go up and remove all the booby traps and expose my men or do I leave them up there and risk another, you know, like, oh man, there's this, it's conflictual, you know, and so um, and it weighs on you. And I decided actually to go up and remove the booby traps. And uh, of course, that was not, uh, that was not a fun experience because, uh the time that I was gone, that area that I had laid all the booby traps in had been bombarded by 155 howitzers on another attack. And so everything was in disarray, right? So when I got up there, I didn't recognize anything. I literally had booby traps, 
you know, that were on a hair wire that I could have easily triggered myself trying to disarm them, you know. But, um, you know, it's those types of things that caused me my PTSD, you know. Um, when you think about that, you know, I had a friend of mine um, get killed on the set for Discovery Channel. I was doing a, uh, filming a TV show. In the book. And, uh, with my, yeah, exactly, you know. And, you know, those types of things, this wasn't even combat now. And he was killed in a helicopter crash. Actually, he, he died in my arms as a consequence of the helicopter crash. But, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that make you go, wow. You know, guys endure all this other stuff and dies on a movie on a Hollywood set. You know, and, you know it's like, you know, that's where my, my issue stemmed from is trying to, um, you know, trying to resolve all that, you know, try to make sense of it all. Um, and it can be very confusing sometimes because in that, in that particular case, if you read the book, um, he and I had a lot in common. Um, both our wives at the time were Hispanic. We had the same number of kids, same ages. We both Green Berets and Delta Force. Um, we were both boxers. We trained together. You know, we had, there's a lot of commonality there. And actually at the last minute, we changed seats. He took my seat on the helicopter and I took his position on the ground and it was supposed to be reversed. So I think of his death in a lot of ways, like, man, that was supposed to be me. And so, you know, you have the survivor's guilt you know, that you carry around all the time. And because uh, now you got to face the family, which I did, you know, that's that's a whole nother story. But, uh, um, you know, that's where mine lies. But it does, you know, as far as combat goes, some of us are just natural born fighters, you know. I've always been a fighter. Growing up, I was a runt. I got a lot of fights. I got bullied a lot. Um, but I had strong parents. You know, they would not allow me to cut and run. In fact, they forced me to fight back. Um, I, my dad would sit there and watch me get in a street fight and come out to drink a beer, you know, and uh, told me, you better kick his ass, son, because don't kick his ass, don't come home, I'm going to kick your ass. No, it was, that, was the, that was the mindset from him and my mom, you know, and so they taught me to defend myself and fight for myself. They didn't teach me to be a bully, but they taught me to fight for myself, and uh, so fighting became natural. Um, got very good at it, I got into martial arts, I boxed professionally, I was an MMA fighter. Um, I actually like the art of war and uh, you know, it's, I, I like it. It doesn't bother me. And uh, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of getting a firefight. I'm not afraid I might get killed or get hurt. I've already resolved all that. I've resolved my death a long time ago. And uh, you know, the only part I haven't been able to resolve is, you know, the, the, the pain and suffering and death of innocent people, particularly kids, you know, that's, that's a hard one to come to grips with. And so, you know, people think that, uh, you know, as a Green Beret or as a Delta Force operator, you're like this mindless savage, you know, this ruthless killer, you know, has no feelings. And, and actually, it's the opposite. It's true. That's why guys like Tom, and, you know, and others have these issues. It's because we actually do have a heart and we do care for humanity, you know, and uh, we are good people at our root. And, uh, you know, it's like a pit bull, you know. Pit bulls are some of the friendliest dogs in the world. They're always wagging their tail. They're so happy. But you put them in a fight, and they're tenacious, right? They're, ten, they're unstoppable. But you get done with them, you break them up, and they're the happiest, luckiest, you know, the greatest dogs in the world. Kind of like, you, like you know, a Delta Force operator. And uh, we do have a heart, and we do hurt. And, uh, you know, we do, uh, you know, we do suffer. But uh, we've learned to, you know, we've learned to, fight through all of that, you know, overcome all that and continue on with our life and continue on with our mission and do good things. So, you know, I've seen enough crap in my life that, uh, you know, I should have been dead many times ago and uh, 
I've seen enough garbage in my life that uh, it would make most people sick. But uh, here I am, killing it. <laughs> Bali, Indonesia. There you are. And, you know, and then you pass. And the thing is, you know, you have so you have children, and you're passing on a lot of these lessons to your children. You talk about it in the book. You know, helping usher in that ethos for them. Uh, and I'll quote you. I'll quote you again from the book. You say, "My mother and father didn't teach me to be a coward, nor did I teach my kids to be so. I had many rules in my house, and none of them were negotiable. My kids were never allowed to say I can't. My wife and I never told our kids that they couldn't do something or that it was too much." I wanted my kids to remain above the social fray and look forward to becoming superhumans. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a powerful thing uh, to have a father like that. How have you, how have you mentored your kids? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty proud of my kids, actually. My, my two oldest ones, my, my, 30, my daughter was 35, she's also a a business coach does very well at it and uh, she's a self-made entrepreneur she's a college graduate um, she's an accomplished martial artist I can go on all day long about her um, very very proud fact she's my business partner um, she's also my business partner how cool is that I'm a business partner with my kids right so um, my son also has two college degrees bachelor's degrees and uh, he's a green beret just like his old man right he followed my footsteps and uh, very proud of him he's a super athlete um, no, I mean, he is a stud, super athlete, high IQ, very accomplished, and uh, pretty good looking, too. <laughs> it came from this. And then, uh, you know, and then my third daughter, uh, my second daughter, um, she's 20. She just, uh, she actually just finished a technical school, um, and she does very well at that. She, again, she's a go-getter. I uh, wouldn't expect anything less. She has a drive like, like all my other kids, right? My kids are all driven, and so, and I forced them. I enforced that in my family. I didn't allow them to be lazy or slackers. Um, you know, I had rules to get up in the morning and make your bed. Um, There's just some things I just didn't, uh, it's like the military. Like I was taught in the military, you know, my dad taught me. It's like, you know, I passed that on to my kids. It's like, you know, um, there's gonna be a little bit of regimentation in your life. You're gonna have to learn a little bit of uh, self-governance, self-leadership, you know? And so, you're right, I, I told my kids, in fact, from the time they were able, everyone was under, able to understand, I told my children, their mission in life, my mission in life first was to raise the bar very high, and I expected them to, to go over that bar, right? That was their mission, to be better than me. And I raised a really high bar. I don't know if they'll ever reach it. It's pretty high, right? So um, I told them, I said, your mission in life should be better, should be to be better than me at everything. And I said, your mission in life is also to raise your kids to be better than you. Right? I said, that's how it should be. Every generation should be better than the last one. I said, and that's how one day Comstock will rule the world. We will be the superhuman beings, right? Is it, that's the only way it'll happen. And so it's step by step by step, generation by generation by generation. I want us to raise winners, not losers. Okay? Yeah, I mean, we got, we got families that are fifth generation welfare recipients. Okay? Mm -hmm. Not having that in my family. Okay, we're going to be generations of generations of generations of high achievers. That's the mission. Guess what? And it's not because we were born in money, because we weren't born into money. Remember, my dad had 11th grade education, my mom had 9th grade education. We were 
broke, right? We were broke, you know? I didn't have no money. I made my money. My kids make their money. You're gonna teach your kids to make their money, but they're gonna also learn to be high achievers because money is not everything, you know? Um, I don't use it as a metric for success. Um, I use life experiences and, um, and, and what you've achieved in life. That's the metrics for success, right? So, um, <clears throat> so I've always instilled that in my kids, you know, and you're right. I, you know, if my kids had an argument, <laughs> my, my, my two oldest ones, I remember. It's like, okay, you guys want to fight it out? You want to have, you got a problem with that? Let's go in the garage. Put the gloves on, put the gear on, just get it on, work it out. And I, hey, might as well learn a lesson out of this. Might as well do some fighting and learn some skills too, right? And then when it's all done, you can shake hands, give each other a hug and a kiss, and you're back to being a brother and sister again. I said, but at least you learned something, right? You learn how to fight while you're at it. So, you know, everything I did was to, to make my kid better. My kids never spent a day in daycare longer than they had to. If I got off of work early, I always picked them up. I don't care how many errands I had to run or what I had to do. They were going to run those errands with me, and we're going to ride together in the car. And while we're riding in the car, we're not going to, you know, at the time, we really didn't have cell phones to mess around with. But, uh, you know, we were going to basically sit in the car and twiddle our thumbs. We were going to have it was going to be a moment of instruction. And dad was going to teach you something about something. And I always told my kids, I don't know everything, but I know something about everything. You know, it might be that much, but I know something, you know, about it. Um, even if I know just what it's called. And so I would take the opportunity to teach my kids something in the car about something whether it was the universe or stars or what is the moon, you know, um, you know, what are the, you know, uh, what are the five elements, you know, you know, whatever it was, man, you know, English, whatever. Um, I took that opportunity to teach my kids something. We didn't just have idle time, you know, and we, and, and my, you know, you think, Oh, how horrible is that? You always just teach your kids. Where's the leisure time, man. We had leisure time all the time. We went camping. Okay. We did martial arts together. We trained martial arts together. We went fishing, you know, we had a great time together. But I always, when I saw an opportunity to make it a teachable moment, I made it. I made my kids better, better, and better. And so here's the irony, right? So I don't want to get political or anything like this, but my kids are of mixed race. So mm -hmm. my, uh, my three oldest kids are, their mothers are black, okay? African-American, black. I don't call them African-American because you're either American or you're not, right? So I'm, I'm not, I'm German-American. No, but I'm just American. But um, so my kids' parents are, mothers are black. So I have mixed kids. Um, I also have Asian kids, okay, <laughs> whose mothers are Asian. Um, one of them is actually Hispanic and they're Asian. And so, and I'm adopting actually my Indonesian kids here. So, you know, I, I look at the world right now and they're all yelling, you know, white man is bad, he's the oppressor, you know, minorities beware, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm so sick of the world telling my kids they're being oppressed and they're being oppressed by guys with my skin tone, right? Um, I really, really resent it because my kids are winners and they're winners, not because of my flesh tone. Um, and then certainly not losers. Okay. And they're not winners because of their flesh tone. They're winners because of the mindset they're, That's why they're winners. That's why I'm a winner. So, you know, people make all these excuses for their failures out there, you know, and they want to always, you know, project on someone else. It's their fault because I'm balanced. It's their fault because I can't get ahead. It's not my fault. It's the way my parents brought me up. You know, I was abused when I was a kid. Hey, man, grow up, take responsibility for yourself. You know what? If you're a Christian, at some point you have to put away your childish ways. It says in the Bible, right? That's usually around your teenage years. If you're not a Christian revolutionist, guess what? You better adapt to your world if you want to survive. And it's, it's purely Darwinism, right? So either way, you're compelled to take responsibility for your life. And your success and failures are yours alone. You own them. I don't care what happened to you. 
Okay, I could use the same daggone excuse. My dad had another great education. My mom had a ninth grade education. I had to go to army and I had to fight. And blah, 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 blah. It was such a horrible experience and I'm a failure. No, I took all those failures, man, to become who I am. And uh, I always say, you know, I'm 90%, 90% of my mistakes, 90% of my failings, and 10% of my enthusiasm. That's who I am. And that's what allowed me to be successful because I never quit. I take accountability and responsibility for everything I do or don't do. And that's what I teach my kids. And you know what? My kids are superstars. That's it because of mindset, parenting, you know, even mentorship. And to be honest with you, I've been divorced several times. That comes with the job. But I've always been a parent to my kids. I don't care where I'm at, especially now where you have FaceTime and, you know, and, and different types of, you know, mediums, uh, the video chat. Mm -hmm. I stay connected with my kids. I do business with my daughter every day, my oldest daughter. I talk to my son all the time who's a special force. I talked to all my, I actually coach my, my, my 20 year old daughter. We do coaching sessions together. You know, um, I get on there and I coach her just like I do all my clients. You know, I don't charge her, but you know, I'm still actively involved in raising my 20 year old daughter, making her a better person. So, you know, that's what, that's what parents do, man, or should do. So, I, I mean, it's so, so refreshing to hear uh, a, a parent talk like that about their expectations of their children um, being being in their own hands uh, and it all being about having the right mindset. And you just mentioned something about coaching. So I wanted to ask because, you know, again, as you say, you're a high achiever and that's clear from your, you know, from, from your resume. Green Beret, Delta Force, MBA, PhD, professional boxer, MMA fighter, entrepreneur, successful business owner. You know, so you've got a lot going on. And obviously, mentoring uh, kids who are also becoming great success stories. You coach, you coach clients. What, what do you coach clients on? Okay, so I've been coaching for about three years now. My daughter's actually wanted to talk me into it. It's kind of funny. She called me one day. She's a, she's a, um, a coach for women entrepreneurs. She teaches them internet marketing. She does very, very well at it. Okay. And uh, I was really impressed with that. And then one day she calls me and says, Dad, you ought, to do, you ought to be a coach, life coach, right? And I thought, why? Because you know? in my mind, I was thinking Tony Robbins and Grant Cardone. Mm -hmm. She follows all these guys, right? And she's like, and she actually used them as an example. She goes, Dad, she goes, I follow all these coaches out there, you know, because I'm always trying to learn, 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 learn. She goes, but none of these guys have anything on absolutely zero. She goes, they're all niche coaches. They're one-trick ponies, right? And uh, it took me a little while to kind of assimilate all that. But then when I started doing my research, I realized, yeah, there's a lot of truth in what she just said. For example, Tony Robbins, right? He'll tell you how to be He'll tell you, you know, how to be successful, like a business, and making money, blah, 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 how to be a millionaire, right? His metrics for success is based on money, okay? He makes a lot of money. Um, Grant Cardone, you know, business, real estate, you know, how to make money, blah, blah, blah. It's always how to make money. All right, so these kind of guys, all right, and no disrespect, they, their metrics for life for success is how much money can you make, right? And I laugh at them. Um, in fact, I was told that, you know, I'm not sure it's, don't know if it's true for sure or not. I was told Tony Robbins was originally mentored by a Green Beret. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I do know many life coaches out there, very, very wealthy life coaches, have never spent a day in the military, yet they've appropriated military culture, 
into the warrior camps, the warrior mindset, right? It's like, I, I read a book, so I'm a warrior, right? So I look at these guys and I laugh at them because, yeah, you're making a lot of money and you guys all lay in bed at night wondering, who would like to be Dale Comstock? Because you never, your money will never, their money will never buy my experience. None of it. They can never do what I did, ever. I can make their money, but they cannot ever do what I did. And when I weigh it out, what's more valuable? My, my experience in life, my life experiences are much more valuable than all the million dollars they have. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't buy it. And so my coaching program is centered on this. I want people to learn how to be good at everything they do, not just one thing, right? Uh, I don't want you to be just one thing good. In fact, if you listen to these other coaches, okay, they tell you, don't quit, you know, don't give up. You know, they, they tell you certain things, but they don't tell you really how. I go into the science behind success. Success is science. It's based on physics and physics alone, nothing else, not even philosophy. Physics. So I go into the science of success. Albert Einstein said it. He goes, if you want to be successful, get on success frequency. And he didn't mean repetition frequency. He meant frequency as an energy, electromagnetic energy, frequency, okay? Um, and, he, and, he, and he says it. And not only does he says it, Nikola Tesla, many of these guys, these scientists are saying the same thing. It's all about energy. My success is based on purely energy. I didn't know that for a long time, but I suspected it. Um, I, I was able to accomplish things by a certain kind of mindset. What I did not know was there's an energy frequency component to it that I was actually activating and didn't know it. I learned it, figured it out, and now that's what I use in my teaching. So I teach, I actually teach three, there's, there's three components, there's actually four, but uh, the three main components of my, um, my, my, my coaching is centered on, one, your body, right? So I've got a doctorate in natural health alternative medicine. Uh, I understand physical fitness. I was a professional athlete. I was a competitive bodybuilder, professional boxer. So I understand diet. I understand fit, fitness, right? How's a Delta Force operator, the most fit human beings on the planet, right? So, um, so what I what I understand is, you know, if you're Christian, again, your body's your temple. You're supposed to take care of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not, if you're evolutionist, well, guess what? Evolution says you better take care of this this body because this is what's going to allow you to survive, to eat, thrive, work. Either way, guess what? You're compelled to take care of this body. Most people don't, and they don't understand how to take care of their body. They wonder why they don't feel good, why they're sick, or they wonder why their attitude's wrong. Because it's the nexus between your body, uh, the physicality of it, right? There's, there's, there's energy in this body that if it's not, um, if it's not in balance, okay, nothing's in balance. So I, I go, I dive deep on the physical fitness plan. In fact, most of my clients lose on average about 32 pounds in eight weeks if they want to lose weight. I had one guy lose 44 pounds in 48 days. Um, so I really go into that. I, I change people's lives physically so they can feel better about themselves, be more confident. And guess what? You have more longevity and you can do more things. You can enjoy life. I'm 57 years old, 57 years old. You see my muscles? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I live like a 20-year-old. I, I, I have... I live like a 20-year-old. I've got a lot of injuries, but nothing that bothers me. I've broken my back. I've been, got fragmentation wounds. I've got concussions. Everything functions 100% like I was a 20-year-old kid. Um, what a great feeling. But, uh, and then I go into mindset, right? I mentioned earlier about you know, self-governance, um, you know, what I teach my kids. But there's a lot more to that, right, about thinking asymmetrically, way outside the box, challenging all the paradigms that have ever been you know, inculcated in, right, from childhood to 
parents and family and culture to, to media, you know, challenge all that because most of it's bullshit, quite frankly. And unfortunately, a lot of people wait till later in life and realize that, oh, damn, I missed out on everything because I believe this crap, right? And so here you are. So what I try to do is get, get ahead of it. I try to teach you how to get ahead of the lies, <clears throat> the misinformation, all right? There's all this tribal knowledge that was just made up around a campfire, okay? Um, so I go into the mindset of it, which includes things like leadership, right? Um, it, 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 uh, I, I talk about different types of mental constructs and tools for, uh, you know, and I don't solve problems, by the way. Okay? There's no such thing as a problem. Everything's a challenge. It's perspective. I change perspective, all right? And when I change my perspective, my approach, my outcomes are different, all right? And not only is my outcomes different, but my approach feels a lot better than if I'm trying to solve a problem. Um, so I go into those types of things. Then I go into another area that's like way ooh, out there, autogenic conditioning. You're like, what the hell is that, right? So I, I dive deep on that, and uh, that includes a lot of different areas. It includes the metaphysical. It includes kinetic molecular theory, the laws of vibration, laws of attraction. Um, there's so many aspects of autogenic conditioning, but it has to do with what I call spinal tuning, the nervous system, mm -hmm. and creating, uh, improving your performance literally overnight, overnight with a certain way of thinking, um, your performance, and then also changing your, your, your future, creating your reality by a certain way of thinking. So it's actually two pieces of this thing. Um, and so we call it self-actualization. Actually, Abraham Maslow called it self-actualization. I teach you how to self-actualize. Live in your dream. I have self-actualized. I am one of 2% of, of the population. I have achieved everything I've ever set out to do. I am living the dream fulfilled. What I've always imagined I wanted, I'm doing it. Doing it. You know, how cool is that? And am I done? Hell no. Because you know what? You have to keep setting. You can't keep setting goals, right? Um, mm -hmm. Add to that bucket list. So I keep doing that. And why do I keep adding to the bucket list? Because I'm like a shark. If I stop swimming, I drown, right? So I got to keep moving. Right? That's what keeps me healthy, healthy young, keeps me invigorated. You know, makes makes life awesome. Is I keep filling the bucket list, man. You know, with more stuff to do. Um, I just started another company, Tier One Performance Coaching, with Joe Teddy from Dual Survival. Right. Um, he's my business partner, and uh, you know, we just started this company six months ago. We're doing pretty well at it, and uh, with the same objectives, right? Try to reach out to more people, and uh, we actually want to compete with these other niche coaches, these guys that have appropriated military culture to make millions of dollars off of people um, selling snake oil. Because we're going to actually teach you how to be successful. Let's talk about it. You know, we're going to actually go into this, the physiology, the psychology, right? We're going to go into the physics of it all on how to be a better person. And we can do that because we've actually done it. That's the difference. Look at our resumes. Look at my resume. Look at Joe's resume. What do you see that one? Holy cow. You know, it's because we've actually done it. We can teach you more. It's plain and simple. That's what we do. That's what I do. Amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. I mean, I got to tell you, just speaking to you, it's, you know, you can feel the passion, you feel the energy. Um, you know, you're, you're a tremendous inspiration, not just because you talk the talk, but because you've walked the walk, as you said. And I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Um, there are so many other questions I have for, for you, and especially about autogenic conditioning, which uh, hope, I hope you'll come on the show again to kind of Absolutely. talk about some of these ideas. Um, but where can our listeners find you on social media, your website, your, and if they're interested in your coaching, where can they find you? Okay. So my website, uh, Joe, and Joe, Ted, and I are, are, are 
uh, the two co-owners on that, um, is www tier one number one tier number one uh, performancecoaching.com tier one performancecoaching.com we're on facebook we've got a facebook page as well um, so you can find us on either uh, either one of those platforms um, very easy to get a hold of um, of course i've got my own personal facebook pages sites but uh not hard to find but i would recommend uh, tier one performancecoaching.com it's okay. probably going to be the best way to get to us um, I also highly recommend that our listeners buy your book, uh, American Badass. It's, it's, it's a fantastic book. You go into a lot of these principles uh, and about your life and about your accomplishments in that book. It's, great. it's a great read. Uh, and I just want to say thanks again for doing the show, Dale. Um, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Appreciate it. Anytime, thank, brother. Thank you.